Welcome to DSO Overflow. I'm Glenn Wilson. I'm Jessica Craig. And I'm Steve Jaguer, the organizers of the DevSecOps London Gathering, a monthly community meetup for anybody involved in factoring security into their software delivery, which is just about everybody. The DSO Overflow podcast is an extension of that meetup in the form of a relaxed discussion with our guests around the topics that feature in our monthly meetup. DSO Overflow wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners and, of course, our sponsors. Prisma Cloud. Cloud native architectures have radically changed the needs of security operations and development teams as attackers capitalize on this ever evolving landscape. Prisma Cloud breaks down silos, allowing for true DevSecOps workflows, full supply chain visibility, and enhanced responsiveness, ensuring complete security coverage across the entire application lifecycle. Apiro. Apiro empowers teams from companies like Morgan Stanley, SoFi, Rakuten, and Navin to secure everything they develop and deliver to the cloud. Apiro's cloud application security platform unifies application risk visibility, prioritization, and remediation to save teams time triaging alerts and fixing high business impact risks. And Sysdig. Sysdig is driving the standard for cloud and container security. With Sysdig, you can prioritize software vulnerabilities, detect and respond to threats, and manage cloud configurations, permissions, and compliance. Your teams get a single view of risk from source to run with no blind spots, no noise, and no black boxes. And of course, a big thanks to musician Joshua Mann for our amazing DSO Overflow theme music. Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of the DSO Overflow podcast. This month, we are joined by Red Hat's Holly Cummins to talk to us about testing in the world of microservices and APIs. Holly discusses the benefits and challenges of contract testing and how adopting a provider or consumer-driven approach will benefit your organisation. Hello and welcome to the DSO Overflow podcast. And this week, Steve, Jess and I are joined by Holly Cummins. Hi, Holly. Hello. So welcome along to the podcast. Uh, please do tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? And, and your journey to what you're doing now? Sure thing. So I'm Holly Cummins. I work for Red Hat um, and I'm part of the team that's building Quarkus. So I'm a senior principal engineer at Red Hat, but I'm working on the product side now, but I do have a past life as a consultant. And so some of what I'm going to talk about today is really informed by those experiences as a consultant and in particular, going out to clients and seeing it all go horribly, horribly wrong. And and some of the, the tactics that can maybe help when the thing causing the wrongness is microservices. I was going to say, um, one of the topics that you've mentioned in the past that you're particularly passionate about is proper testing and its role in the development of good software. Do you think it's overlooked? Like, how has your kind of time as a consultant informed your view of testing? So there's sort of two parts to that. When I was a consultant, the team um, that I was in, we were really passionate about our methodology. So we did a lot of design thinking, we did a lot of lean, and then we did extreme programming as well. And of course, test-driven development is one of the core principles of extreme programming. So we really believed, and I still do believe, that front-loading that testing makes everything more testable, it improves the design process, it solves a whole bunch of problems. But unfortunately, a lot of teams 
don't do that. And if anything, they do the opposite. So testing can often get left to the end of the process. And in in the worst cases, we might do unit testing in line with development, but then the integration testing, which is a lot more expensive and sometimes does need specialized skills. I think we still do see in in our industry, the sort of the wall throwing methodology where, you know, you have, (laughs) you have the software engineers and then you, you know, when you get to a certain point, you throw it over to the wall to QA and they're perhaps, you know, behind or at best in terms of what they're testing. So the feedback loops are really slow and there's an extra communication overhead as well that comes in just from, okay, so tell me what you developed so that I can test it. And okay, tell me what your testing found. Oh, it didn't work. Okay, well, let me, I'll fix that next sprint. And so it just means that this feedback is really dragged out. But I think there's there's another problem as well, which is not always, but in general, where you do have those silos, there is usually a little bit of a prestige difference and a status difference. And the team with the higher status, I would say, is not the testing team. So when we have something that is so fundamentally important to the success of everything that we do, and then we assign people who do that thing a lower status... That's not going to help us or our industry because it just means that people have an incentive to spend less time testing if testing is a low status activity. I think we feel a lot of uh, kinship with you there. I mean, coming from a security background and feeling low status and knowing the testing is fundamental to security. Um, but I'm going to take a step back. And we, we talked about this a little bit before you mentioned Porcus. And I think if our listeners don't know what it is you work on, can you elaborate a little bit more about what that product range is? Yeah, so Quarkus, I mean, I, I I could talk for hours just about Quarkus because it's really interesting. <laughs> um, but Quarkus is a Java framework. So it fundamentally, it does a lot of the same things as something like Spring Boot in terms of it assembles libraries. But what it does, which is quite interesting, is it really is modernizing Java for the cloud native era. And traditionally, the way Java has been designed has been so that you could take your Java application, put it on an application server, put it you know, out into a data center and leave it up for six months. And of course, your requirements would change in that time. So you'd be changing things out and you know, doing late binding and dynamic binding and basically sort of swapping the plane while the engine was flying, which is really clever engineering. But when you're running in a container... <laughs> It is completely and utterly pointless because hopefully, 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 hopefully for all sorts of reasons, when when you want to update what's in your container, you just rebuild the whole container. And from a security perspective as well, of course, because then hopefully you're getting the patch operating system images and that kind of thing. So all of the stuff that we used to do to allow that late binding and the reflection and this really sort of... Um, lazy, lazy initialization of a system, there's an overhead to it. So you're paying that tax, even when you're in a container and anytime you want to change something, you're going to rebuild the whole image. So what Quarkus does is it tries to have shims on a lot of popular libraries that will allow them to be built more in this model where things are configured at build time and things are resolved at build time. And so then that means at runtime, 
the footprint is way lower, which is useful in the cloud. The performance is way better. So it means things like response time are better, which is useful if you're talking to human beings on the other end of the service. And then it also means that if you are going to go and look at something like native compilation, like GraalVM, then it's done all of the heavy lifting that will then enable you to do a native compilation as well. So it's really nice for that. So that's sort of one side of Quarkus is let's make it really efficient. And then the other side of it is, hey, if we know how this application works at build time, we could do some things that normally would be too expensive to do to make the developer experience better because we know what's in the application. We have a developer mode and it gives you live reloading a lot. Like if you're doing something like Node.js, you're just completely accustomed to, to live reloading. But in the Java world, traditionally it's you know, there's been a few things that have done it, but they don't do it super well. And so with Quarkus, you've got the live reloading, you've got continuous testing. So again, going back to that subject of testing, it uses like a reverse code coverage technique so that it knows what code is touched by what tests. And so then you can flip that round. And if you change code, you know what tests would have to be run in order to find all of the horrible bugs that you just introduced. And so it means that you can run just sort of a targeted subset of the tests, depending on what you just changed. So it's really nice as a developer experience. And it sounds like it's designed to sort of avoid a lot of those, I guess, like mis-executions and ensure quality version control when you're working in like a distributed team on these individual systems. Yeah, I think so. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, I think so. It sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing is designed to kind of enable the intentions that we have behind our good work to kind of come to life. And it seems like there's a lot of aspirations in the sort of microservices world when it comes to sort of like implementing those types of architectures. How accurately do you think expectations match up to reality when it comes to implementing microservices? Is, is that kind of something that you've seen as a consultant? Yeah. And and I I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great question because I think, I don't know if we just always do this to ourselves and it's just the way we work as people, right? Because, you know, it's even been encoded in the hype cycle of any time we have a new approach, people get so excited by it. And then you get these these things that get written that say, this will solve all of your problems. And then people try it out. And then it's this crushing disappointment. You know, so in the hype cycle, it's called the trough of disillusionment because it didn't solve all of my problems. Oh, it must be a terrible technology. Let's throw it out. Oh, there's this new technology that's even shinier. And I think there's all sorts of reasons that we do this. I think it's easy to sort of laugh at people and say, silly people, silly us. Look, we're always just chasing the next shiny. But I think we do it for really good reasons often, which is that professionally, we want to be better at our job. We want to get better at our job. We want to bring in new things. And then there's the slightly less positive side, which is the new thing is always shiny and novel. And we imagine that it's going to solve all our problems. A lot of the initial messaging around microservices was this you're going to be decoupled. Coupling is a problem for you. You need to become decoupled, which is sort of true. The way you become decoupled is by making a distributed system. Here we've got the sort of the first break with reality because there's lots of ways to become decoupled. OSGI is an excellent way to become decoupled with its own hazards. But, you know, there's there's always a trade-off. And being distributed doesn't necessarily make you decoupled because you can have a very coupled distributed system and then it's a distributed monolith and it's just awful. And so if you're not really addressing the root causes of your coupling, but you just insert lots of HTTP communication in your app, funnily enough, 
it's going to be a hot mess and it's going to be even hotter and even messier than it was before you did your microservices transformation. So I think that's what a lot of organizations are now sort of struggling with is we've switched to microservices. Some of the problems that we were hoping it was going to fix haven't gone away because we didn't address the root causes. We have a whole bunch of new problems because we now we have the distributed computing fallacies that we kind of forgot when we made that architectural decision and now we're discovering them again. Um, and we have distributed communication. And then as well, what we're seeing, which is kind of interesting, is there's an overhead concern with microservices as well. So with, with Quarkus, quite often we'll sort of hear a client's story where there's two at sort of opposite ends of the development life cycle. One was it was a startup and it was the CTO of this startup. You know, of course, the CTO wants to start the application to try it out because that's what CTOs are supposed to do. And he had this like brand new M2 laptop and he couldn't actually bring up the stack for this startup on his laptop because there's so many services. So he had to just like fire them all up and the overhead was so high. So when you're the CTO and you have your laptop, that's just kind of irritating. But then at the other end, when you're running in production at scale, it can become incredibly expensive. So there was one of our references, they were running on Spring Boot and they had about a hundred microservices and it was, you know, a large business with an important application. So they were running in triplicate for redundancy. And some of these microservices, I think, were taking a gig of memory and half a core just to run. So because you have that fixed overhead for each service, if you multiply the number of services by 100, all of a sudden your overheads have ballooned. And so then you really start to have, again, this efficiency problems. For that one, you know, we sort of came in with Quarkus and with our capes on and they they switched to Quarkus and their resource usage halved and everybody was happy and they carried on with their microservices journey. But I think in that case, you know, if they hadn't, they would have had to probably have some difficult architectural conversations about did we get the boundaries right and maybe we need to go back to a, a bit of a, a macro services just to reduce the overheads. Do you find, because it's this is a Java-specific world that you're in and there's a rather huge history of Java development that led up to the movement to microservices that there might be a skills gap that's leading to some of these um, pitfalls that people are running into? Or do you think this is just common across all microservices? I think that's a really interesting question. But I, I don't have solid evidence for this, but I think that this is something that affects every language. And... I guess it might be, if you're looking at something like JavaScript, like one of the things that I think is a real struggle with microservices is that you lose, and this sort of comes back to, to some of the things that you know we may talk about with contract testing, but one of the things that is a struggle with microservices is you lose your type safety. And of course, Java developers are really accustomed to type safety. We take it for granted. And so then when we lose it, we perhaps are extra vulnerable. Whereas in something like JavaScript, you know, they've kind of learned how to operate without type safety. <laughs> you know, so so I don't know what the um, the right analogy is. You know, they didn't have the guardrails for ages, and so then maybe they, they might have better mitigations. But I'm not sure because, of course, what a lot of JavaScript developers have done is they've switched to TypeScript to bring back that type safety. 
I have opinions about TypeScript. I think it's the worst of both worlds, but TypeScript is is very popular. So not everybody shares that opinion. I think some of us do. Oh, and the efficiency of TypeScript is terrible as well. It's um <laughs> it consumes four times more energy to run a TypeScript application than a normal JavaScript application. It's absolutely atrocious. So again, it's about that overhead and that tax that you know you pay a really big tax for the type safety. And then you have to say, well, did I actually want to pay a huge tax in order to have to do three times as much typing in order to write my code? Maybe not. But on the note of tax, wouldn't it be so much better if we could just agree like the the requests that we're making, the response that we're expecting with almost like a broker style system? It's funny you mention that. Because I think that really is the sort of the missing piece. And I think often we sort of rush into microservices with this fantasy of being decoupled. And we think that means that we never have to talk to the other team. Because in a way, that was actually what we were promised. We were told when you go to microservices, you can have your two pizza team and they can do whatever they like and complete autonomy. And as long as their service works, the system as a whole will work. But of course, with systems, you get this emergent behavior. And so much of the behavior is dependent on the interactions between these services and whether those go according to plan. And so I think when we talk about testing, you know, we're sort of all really comfortable with the idea of integration testing, which is that you test everything together. And we're all really comfortable with the idea of unit testing, that we test our own little component. And the problem that a lot of us have been struggling with is when you do unit testing, it's really cheap and really easy, which is great, except that you don't actually have any confidence that the system as a whole is going to work. And that when you go to something like a microservices architecture with that loss of type safety between the different services, then the safety, that type safety was ironically given you since <laughs> the clues in the name, you know, you've lost that and, and there's nothing in your architecture to help you get it back. And there's nothing in your testing to help you get it back unless you go all the way to integration testing. And so one thing that's really, really useful in a microservices system is to have a layer between those two, which is contract testing. And what contract testing allows you to do is it allows you to test just your own thing without the expense of spinning up the remote service, but in a way that gives you some confidence that if you're the consumer of the service, you're using APIs that actually exist and the data that you're getting is somewhat realistic of what it would give you. And if you're the provider of the service that, again, the kind of calls that you're getting in are the sort of calls that a consumer might be making. Finally, we got there and because we, we wanted to talk about contract testing. Um, and I think people listening, and certainly me when I first heard of it, I didn't know where it fit. Like it sounded cool. I've got my unit tests. I've got my integration tests. Why am I not done? And you've alluded to some of it already, but can you put it in the context of where it lives in the life cycle of software in comparison with these other two components or styles? Yeah. The life cycle question is a really interesting one. So in terms of the test pyramid, it's really easy um, because you can just sort of in your head draw the test pyramid and then you can have integration tests at the top and then you can have unit tests at the bottom. So you, you should have lots of unit tests and a small number of integration tests. And again, people argue about the exact shape. And, but if we, if we just accept that, then the contract tests are in the middle. The lifecycle question, I think, is going to probably be one where mileage varies a lot more between teams. So probably an ideal lifecycle would be one where contract testing is done right from the beginning of the process, because otherwise, if you add in too late, it's 
not going to save you from the mistakes because you've already caught the mistakes another way and you're going to have to pay this tax for testing because testing is is a tax. Um, so the, I think the ideal would be that you would start, there's two styles of doing it. One is provider-driven con contract testing and one is consumer-driven contract testing. And that's really about which side provides the contract. So if you start with consumer-driven contract testing, I think the ideal model would be that, you know, you're doing your TDD. And so when at some point you make a mock of the remote service and instead of making just a normal mock that is just an artifact that lives in your team and that no other team can get value from, instead you use a contract testing framework to make that mock. So that would probably and likely be packed. That's the sort of the de facto consumer-driven contract testing framework, but it could be something else. You make that mock and then you can share that mock to the provider. And if you've done it really early and, you know, in a real sort of TDD way, the provider hasn't even started implementing yet when they get your mock, which is now a contract for them. And that tells them what they need to implement. So instead of them having to sort of speculatively go off and, you know, write these endpoints based on what they think you might need, they can write in TDD, we would say you write to the test and they can write to the contract. So it allows a Yagni flow, which is you ain't going to need it, which is again really aligned with those kind of lean principles that instead of just generating lots of code in case it's useful, you do what you know is needed based on the evidence that you have from your consumers. Can that be dangerous because you can misinterpret what you think is needed or is it because of the contract is the way it's laid out, it generally goes really well? I think there's two potential challenges with doing it that way. One has to do with the depth of your contract testing. So sometimes when people talk about contract testing, they're talking really just about testing the schema. So testing the syntax of what's going across the wire. So again, like the type safety, you know, I'm, you're going to have this field, you're going to have this field, and you know, this field is going to be spelt in this way, and we're not going to change the spelling, even if we notice the typo, and that kind of thing. That avoids a whole class of problems. But there's a second class of problems, which are the semantic ones, which is, if I pass in this input, I expect you to behave in this way. I don't expect you to throw an exception if I pass in this input that I think is valid. Or, you know, even sort of more functional things about, you know, if it's a loan application, and if I pass in someone who has a high income, I expect you to say that they're approved for a loan or that's actually a terrible example because then you're really exercising the business logic and the business rules of the remote service, which is exactly what you don't want to be doing. You want to be doing your functional testing in enough depth that you know that you're expressing your expectations about the behavior, not just about the syntax, but without going into so much depth that you've just ended up testing the business logic and the business rules, because those should be encapsulated in the service. So you don't want those to leak out, but you still want enough testing that in an ideal world, you know, you could even, you know, skip the integration testing phase if you would go out and you'd say, okay, yep, everything works. So that's sort of one risk is that you either test too little and it gives you a false sense of confidence because you just tested the syntax and you didn't test the semantics. Another risk is that you test too much and you end up testing the, the business rules. But those both fall, I think, into sort of risks about testing. There's another risk, which is about communication. And if you have a really misfunctional team, then the contract tests can become a weapon, which, I mean, if in, when you're in that scenario, then, you know, you, you have bigger problems to, to solve. The contract tests are just a symptom, particularly with a consumer-driven contract test. 
the model is that if I'm the consumer, I lay out my expectations and then I share my contract to you. You run the tests against that contract. And if I say I expect to have an endpoint, I expect you to have an endpoint that says get user by name. If you don't have that endpoint and I just make up my demand for you to have that endpoint and then shove my contracts into your CI, your CI is going to break. So there is some trust needed between the teams and there is some communication needed between the teams. And that's going to be the case if you're doing microservices, no matter what. And you would much rather discover that you have a missing endpoint at the contract testing phase and at the CI phase than in production or in integration testing, because the longer you defer it, the more it's going to cost. But if you have that kind of team culture where everything is the other team's fault and you sort of have that relationship with, you know, your project manager parent and it always ends up being, you know, well, we would have been fine, but, you know, the other team ate my homework. The other team didn't do what they were supposed to do, so we're behind. Then contract tests can be, you know, a little bit of another sort of tool and another thing to hit the other team with to say, well, we're just going to, you know, shove all of our work onto them and then their CI fails and we can tell the project manager that we're totally on top of it. A question I have about consumer contract testing, is it scalable? Because I'm thinking if the consumer is directing how the provider is creating their contracts, then if you then end up with multiple consumers of that particular contract, you might have conflicts. Is that something that you need to be aware of? Definitely. So I think people get quite excited about the the discussion of consumer-driven contract testing versus provider-driven contract testing, but they really, I think each has its place. And then there's kind of a tipping point in the middle where maybe you want to have an argument. But if you have a small number of consumers, then consumer-driven contract testing can work really well. And I think it can be more than one. And in fact, I think it can be really useful if you have more than one, because then it gives you that assurance that a change you make for one consumer doesn't end up breaking all of your other consumers. Or that, again, you know, particularly those, some, some of those semantic problems, there can be subtle expectations and of different behavior between the different consumers and you want to flush those out. But if you have a lot of consumers, you maybe don't even know who those consumers are. Maybe, you're, you know, you're just providing a utility service. Certainly if you're doing something that's in any way public facing, or if you're doing anything even at quite a large scale in an organization. So, you know, if you're providing one of those foundational core services, consumer-driven testing isn't going to work. And so then at that point, you probably want to go to was called provider-driven contract testing. And so the, the goal is the same, which is to provide a mock for the consumer and a functional test for the provider. But the difference is about who owns the generation of that linking middle piece. So with provider-driven contract testing, the provider owns the creation of it. So they make it, they share it out at perhaps a well-known endpoint, you know, my contracts or whatever, slash my contracts, and then everybody else can just pick up those contracts and use it to spin up a mock. One advantage of this, just in terms of ecosystem, is that if you're doing consumer-driven contract testing at the moment, there's an annoying lack of reuse with any other mocks that you might have already written, and there's an annoying lack of reuse with anything like OpenAPI. If you're doing the provider-driven contract testing, you could do your own format, but in general, almost all of the tools will just be based on OpenAPI if you're doing REST or if you're doing something else, gRPC, async, whatever, then they can use whatever the, the schema specification for that is. 
I wanted to touch back on the point that you made about um, the sort of like business impact of these, like the ability of these testing practices to kind of expose, I guess, the makeup of our organisations. I think automated testing and the ability to rely on our tests and trust them and not have like flaky integration tests continually gets called out in be it a reports or like assessments from the DevOps research and assessments metrics um, that were initially kind of outlined in the Accelerate books. It always gets kind of called out as a very like important kind of pillar within a an organization. Um, you know, we know these things in theory, but like in practice, what have you seen around teams that implement contract testing and how that changes their dynamics? Oh, it's a really good question about the change in the dynamics. One thing I, I have noticed is that the contract testing can be a useful way just to get your, your org chart drawn with the Conway law. Because with some of the frameworks, so for example, if you're using PACT, there's a PACT broker, and then there's like a, a pay for cloud service as well. And in the in the PACT broker, you can look and you can see the map of who's testing against who and, and what version. So that's really useful to give you the input that you need to make a go, no go decision on your project or on your deploy. But it also means that you can see who's using what service and you get that kind of high level view. It's such a good question about the, the changing, whether it changes organizations. I, I can definitely see that it has the potential to do so. Um, but I don't have any really good stories of it. And more generally, in fact, I'm, I'm always sort of, because I talk a lot about contract testing and it's not super well known. And it's not super widely used. So like if you read Sam Newman's microservices book, he says, do contract testing. You probably want to use PACT. And so it gets sort of given as good advice, but a lot of teams do find it hard. And I always kind of want to ask them, okay, so, you know, did you try it? What what worked? What didn't? And then that question that you just had, Jess, is such a great follow-up question of like, okay, and how did it change? What What impact did you see from it beyond just the obvious of, our quality was up. We were able to deploy more often, more safely, all of that. Are there instances where, where contract testing just completely isn't the right thing? Like, are there any complete no-brainer? Yes, I love contract testing, but in these cases, maybe it's not going to work. I This is a question, again, that I, I ask myself a lot because um, I do talk to teams who have found it very hard. So that's definitely something to be aware of going into the technique. And I think it's really worth when you start the contract testing journey, if you can, you know, trying to find a mentor who's done it to sort of give some best practices. So for example, one thing that I see almost every single time somebody tries to do it is that you end up on the consumer side, you end up testing the mock because you really care a lot what the provider is giving you and you have this handy thing and you're writing tests. So you just end up exercising the behavior, but it's a mock. It will do exactly what you told it to. You don't need to test it. But again, this is sort of, you know, an anti-pattern that happens every time. And I can completely see why, because if you look at examples, almost every example on the web as well does this because to show the real thing ends, ends up being a much more complicated example because then you're not just sort of showing the syntax. You have to end up having like a complicated service and and you have to explain what's in the mock and what's not. And it just ends up being such a lot of hard work. I think that it's worth being aware that there are these pitfalls, that there are a, a skill level of sort of, you know, you must be this high to do it. And then that sort of then gets to the kind of the really complicated 
and you know kind of existential question of if your team doesn't have that skill level what do you do do you try and raise the skill level or do you say no what you know what actually no we're just going to be like a c grade team and we're okay with that and you know <laughs> we have bigger fish to fry and either we say we're a c grade team and that's okay we're the you know <laughs> buy them high and sell them cheap of software engineering and that's okay you know or um do you say yeah we want to we really need to raise the bar but before we do that we need to change our culture we need to have all sorts of cultural things that happen before we get to the point where maybe we have the skill level to do contract testing or do you say actually let's let's start here because we know this is going to make a positive impact I would think surely there might be a risk relationship there because in certain industries like fintech or like food tech where one little piece of downtime can cost you millions um that's such a huge business risk that even if you don't have the skills do you ever see top downs like i know it's hard but you're gonna have to figure it out yeah i have normally seen it mandated from the bottom up rather than from the top down i think because from a top-down perspective, integration testing and contract testing are trying to achieve the same goal, which is I want to know before I deploy to production if these things work together. Contract testing has a potentially much lower cost and a much shorter feedback loop, which is great for developers, but potentially at the higher level, that's maybe less important than the sort of the, just the overall goal of just get into production without any outages and without poisoning anybody, please. Poisoning. Okay. Went dark there. All right, cool. That's interesting. And I wonder if that's because, and I, the reason I asked that is because I'm relating our security world to your testing world. And mm. we have the same problems. People don't consider it important. We think we're like a C-level team. We're just not going to do anything related to security. And we're just going to get this into production because that's more important. And sometimes it requires a top-down mandate to make that happen. But it just makes me think now there's probably people in the C-level, hopefully, listening to this podcast <laughs> who are now looking up contract testing going, oh, okay, maybe I, maybe I should be mandating this downward. I just never heard of it. Yeah, yeah, I hope, I hope so. I've just realized we've used C to mean two completely opposite things just now. I, I was some. Um, oh, just... <laughs> yeah. I knew, I knew what each C meant, but I used both in the same Yeah, because I... <laughs> I, 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 I think... Um, I think you were using C to mean like the executive suite and I was using C for like grades. So like, you know, you have the A team who are really good and you have the B team who are kind of average and then you have the C team who are pretty me mediocre and, you know, there's a lot of bugs in there. Yeah, thanks. I, I actually think I said both Cs in my yeah, response I think just to muddy did. that water even yeah. more. Yeah, so if, if anybody's listening and they're confused, <laughs> it's not you, it's us. <laughs> Apologies all. It's time catching. No, but I think when we were kind of, when you were sort of breaking down the uh, the nature of the problem, I was kind of catching, I think when we've been delving into contract testing, it's hard not to take the approach of, all right, so this is the missing component of the gun that double yeah. fired the silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. like it's hard to not put all of your faith in this one cool trick because I think yeah. that's kind of what yeah. we very much want to be able to do. Yeah. But I guess I wonder whether or not, do you believe that maybe... Is this less of a expand your world and include the wonders of contract testing, more of a sort of understanding of if you are to tackle a microservices basic architecture, like if you are to implement that within your environment, there are considerations to be made to be able to actually get the gains from that. Where does contract testing kind of sit with, within the microservices? I think it's both. So I think the sort of the, the unpleasant truth that contract testing is 
exposing is that if you are doing microservices, you are still going to need to have some way of ensuring that the system as a whole works and you are still going to have some coupling. And that truth is going to have to be dealt with no matter what. Um, So one way of dealing with it is to have loads of failures in production not the recommended way. Another way of dealing with it is to have a really heavy suite of integration tests. That's annoying. And usually that's a bit like frog boiling as well. So often teams only discover that they got into that point when they're well underway in their microservices journey. And they're going, wait a minute, why does this feel like a monolith? And then contract testing is is another way. So I think, I think you kind of have to do both. I think you have to tell, acknowledge to yourself some of the risks and downsides of microservices. And then have an understanding of contract testing as one way of potentially mitigating some of those downsides with the the recognition that it is not a silver bullet. I'm hoping it's going to get better because I mentioned at the moment, like contract testing, you know, I think quite rightly is its own level in the test pyramid, but it makes me a little bit sad how disconnected it is from the rest of the testing ecosystem. And that doesn't seem to be fundamental. It seems like this is just a tooling question. We could have tooling that made it so that instead of having to know about contract testing and discover it, the tooling kind of encouraged you along that way. And your normal testing tooling was like, hey, you've just made this artifact. How about you shared it to the other team? There might be some benefits in that. Cool. I'm a lot of questions, but I'm curious if there's anything, Holly, that we didn't ask you that you're like, oh, come on, I wanted to talk about this. So we touched a little bit about the security side of it, because I think there is potentially a whole bunch of security problems that contract testing could also catch. Um, only only certain categories of them, but anywhere where you have that boundary between the services, you potentially have something that can be, you know, an unwanted input, an invalid input, a message that seemed really innocuous to the first service and then, then ends up being toxic to the second service. And so I think contract testing can be potentially quite useful for catching some of these problems. I did do a little bit of reading on it and the reading on it ended up being a little bit like some of the general contract testing reading actually, which is, yeah, this is great. It can definitely solve a bunch of security related problems. And now I'm going to go really blank to give you (laughs) actual examples of of what they might be. Um, So I'd I'd love to have some more color for that part of the conversation because I think there is a lot of potential there. And so in general, actually, like I'm I'm always collecting contract testing stories. I, I talk about contract testing, but I want to know not just what it does and why it's good, but why are people finding it hard? Because as a tooling maker, as a as a product developer, that's useful for me to know, you know, how is there something that I can do to make software that makes this better? And then I think I'd love to hear the sort of the security stories too of here's how it can be used for a security focus. Here's the category of problems that it could solve for people who care about security, which hopefully is all of us. You've covered a lot about contract testing. Um, for our listeners, if they wanted to dig deeper, how would they do that? Where would they go? Are there any resources they can dig out? So there's a couple of tools those are really good starting points. They tend to have a lot of documentation and a lot of explanation. So one is PACT. Um, so for consumer-driven contract testing, PACT is probably the, the de facto standard. Um, for people looking at provider-driven contract testing, there's a relatively new tool called Microx, which is really cool. It's now um, part of Postman. So again, I mentioned that you know we need more integration. If you're using Postman, then you may find that there's a nice 
flow between what you're already doing with Postman and what Microx is doing. Microx is really Kubernetes oriented. So probably if you're not using Kubernetes, then Microx may not be very interesting to you. But if you're in that Kubernetes world and Microx, I talk, I tend to talk about REST sort of as a default, but Microx also has support for gRPC and async and all of those other protocols as well. So that can be a very nice modern way of doing it. And then of course the Sam Newman book, just in general, sort of slightly independent of contract testing, but you probably, we, we always mention the Sam Newman books. And if people want to talk to you about or, or suggest security applications or just get to know more, how do I get a hold of you? I mean, by the way, if you're listening, all of these links or any discussion will be in the show notes. So you can, you can get all of it there. So as, as is sort of inevitable in our, in our modern world, I am omni-channel. Um, so LinkedIn is a good way. Um, I'm on Mastodon as Holly Cummins at hackyderm.io. Um, I'm still on Twitter as well. So any of those are, are good places. Excellent. Thank you so much for sitting with us, for delving into contract testing, for talking about pitfalls, various benefits, how to build a gun that will not fire a silver bullet, but <laughs> yeah. get used there along the way yep oh my pleasure thank you for inviting me it's been really interesting thank you that's great cool cheers that's a wrap so thank you for listening to this episode please contact us via email at team that's t-e-a-m at dsolg.com if you wish to either give us a talk at a monthly gathering or come and join us on this podcast and if you enjoyed this podcast please don't forget to leave us a review from where you downloaded this episode it will help us spread the news about DevSecOps and reach a larger audience. And we'll catch you in a month's time for our next DevSecOps London Gathering Meetup and, of course, the follow-up podcast, DSO Overflow. I'm Glenn Wilson. I'm Jessica Craig. I'm Steve McGarrett. See you next time.